I'm Ryan Androsif. Welcome to Let's Think Digital. Look outside your window. What do you see? Neighbors walking from one place to another? Kids playing in a park? Cars driving down a busy street? Look more closely and you might also see smartphones reporting on a swing that needs repairing on an app. Or a smart water meter measuring water consumption. Or cameras high above counting the number of cars passing through an intersection. And if you look even more closely, you might actually see that all around you are streams of data being created, consumed, and used to make decisions about our cities and the built environment around us. Whether you know it or not, we are, as one of our guests provocatively suggested this week, living inside a computer. And this creates real questions about whether our cities, where eight out of 10 people live here in North America, are truly ready to be digital or smart cities. Do we have the right levels of transparency for citizens to know what data is being collected, how it's being collected, and for what purpose? And are governments ready to use data and technology to improve and modernize our public institutions? To answer these questions, we're bringing you two really interesting conversations that we had at the Forward 50 conference in Ottawa back in November. First up is Jacqueline Liu. She is the president and co-founder of Helpful Places, a social impact enterprise that is working to ensure that places we live and work in and the technologies within them are helpful and empowering for people in their communities. They've got a really interesting project called the Digital Trust for Places and Routines Standard, which is meant to increase the transparency, legibility, and accountability of digital technology in the built environment. Jacqueline shares with us what has been motivating this work with the values and approaches that she hopes our future smart cities will embrace. And our second conversation on today's podcast is with John Howling. John is the Director of Data, Analytics and Visualization for York Region in the Greater Toronto Area. John's had a fascinating career focused on data, both in the public and private sectors. He shares some of his insights on the importance of data to fuel the digital revolution. We also talk about some interesting work that Think Digital has partnered with York Region on to co-develop a digital maturity model to help public sector organizations better understand what they need to do to make sure they have the capacity to operate effectively in a modern digital world. I hope you'll enjoy the conversations on today's episode. As always, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to click the like and subscribe buttons below if you're watching on YouTube or follow the show on your favorite podcast app. Let's dive in. So I'm really excited to have Jacqueline Liu with us today. Uh, Jacqueline, you were speaking this morning here at Forward 50 about the work you were doing with your organization, Helpful Places. Yep. Um, and you've got a fascinating history working in smart cities in a whole variety of different contexts. Um, would love for you to maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do and the work that your organization does. Sure. So um, I do consider myself a bit of a recovering public servant, having spent almost 20 20 years in New York City government, leading actually the Parks Department through various stages of digital transfer transformation, starting with the very first 311 initiative under the Bloomberg wow. administration. Um, you know, helped build the geospatial data practice at the Parks Department. This was when you know MapQuest was still new. Mm -hmm. so I'm just dating myself here. <laughs> 
<laughs> like a little bit, um, but also like really sort of helped grow the digital capability um, at the Parks Department through through that career, culminating in um, actually a project called the New York City Street Tree Map, which was mm. one of the biggest crowdsourcing projects of asset management quality geospatial data mm-hmm. for New York City street trees, uh, 2,200 volunteers and 60 community groups. And that project lives on now and actually sort of finished my public service career um, sort of setting up the open data strategy at the Parks Department and founding the data analytics team and within an innovation and performance mm-hmm. management division. So that's a little bit about me. Um, and then it was time for me to come back home to Canada. I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do when I first got here, um, but then there was this little project that not a ton of people heard about. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but Sidewalk Labs was working on a smart city pro- proposal for the uh, Waterfront Toronto, which is the Economic Development Corporation um, in, in Toronto at the time. And I was sort of given the opportunity to think about, well, what does a public realm technology strategy look like right. if you could sort of you know, think about starting fresh. If you didn't have these sort of really um, challenging conditions around legacy technology, legacy infrastructure, you know, how could technology really help um, improve outcomes for public spaces? Um, Of course, that also came along with a fair bit of concern um, from members of the public and here in Toronto around, well, what does it mean to have increasingly digitalized public spaces? Um, And so that, that became a bigger and bigger part of my portfolio as a Sidewalk Labs project uh, went on. Helpful Places was really um, is a social impact enterprise that seeks to shift norms on how technology is deployed in the built environment. And we actually um, came, we, 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 we came into being sort of in 2020 after, after the Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto um, was sunset for a variety of reasons. Um, and the reason we, we, we came into being was that while I was at Sidewalk, we did run an open co-design process um, and prototyping project that sought to try to answer the question, well, how could you let residents and visitors in a smart mm-hmm. district understand the digital layers that sort of overlay these public spaces? How could you give them notice? What are mechanisms and avenues for them to learn more and follow up. Um, And as an open source project, we were starting to get some traction in those late days of of the Sidewalk Labs project. Um, And I wanted to continue that work. And so that was the genesis of Helpful Places. And since then, we've worked with eight and counting different organizations um, across North America, um, in Australia, as well as in France, to deploy the open source standard and to try to, you know, see how we could sort of shift, shift to shift the balance of information um, in a way that's a bit more that's more empowering for the person on the street. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and you know, I think this notion of technology in our built environment mm-hmm. that you were talking about this morning. You know, we're at the Forward Fifty Conference here in Ottawa, yeah. where we're recording this interview, and I think people often think about technology in the context of websites or apps, yeah. and and they forget that you know, increasingly we have such an interconnected physical digital world, right, of sensors and data. You made this comment this morning that we are essentially living inside of a computer, which, which I loved. That was a great turn of phrase. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit and how that shapes the work that you're doing in helpful places. Sure, 100%. I mean, I think 
when we think about community spaces or the built environment, um, what we see or what I see are sensors that are collecting data. They're perhaps measuring the movement of goods, the movement of people. They are helping us understand what the environment is looking like. So one of one of the dreams I used to have when I worked in the public sector at parks is like, well, what if the parks could talk to me about the maintenance needs yep. um, instead of having to rely on you know socioeconomically biased 311 complaint information information just as a for example yeah. so i actually so 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 when i say we live inside a computer whether their sensors are involved or not there's increasingly a vast amounts of data that are being captured and, and collected about how we use spaces, how spaces are being used and about the environment itself. And those data sets and those data streams are being used to, at least in the near term, develop insights so that we can understand how these facilities, how these spaces are actually working. Mm -hmm. um, think about the systems, like transportation systems is, is, is a big area, right? We think about sensors um, and sensing. Um, but increasingly, those systems are also starting to make decisions. They're making decisions about how the space might work, how um, you know an environment might be optimized. And so when I say we're living inside a computer, there are all of these digital layers of services and infrastructure that overlay our physical environment, and we can't see them, and we don't know that they're there. And I think that is a challenge when we think about wanting to um, you know, following the theme of the Forward 50 conference, <laughs> you know, have technology um, create a better society for all. Because how can you begin to participate in a dialogue about the desired outcomes of these technologies, yeah. of these AI and decision-making systems, actually, um, if you don't know they're there? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there is, I mean, there's clearly a trust layer behind this, right? You know, and, and um, we've done a lot of recent work around looking at AI in the public sector and what the impacts of it. And when, when there's that disconnect between trust, between people and their governments, which can exist for a whole variety of reasons, but technology can accelerate that, mm -hmm. it's tough to make progress. And, you know, you mentioned Sidewalk Labs. I think there's a whole bunch of other examples <laughs> like that, where when that trust balance gets out of whack, the kind of social license to be able to pursue some of these potential innovations goes away in a sense, right? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you see this um, quite prominently, actually, in the United States, where sort of concerns about sensor technologies or surveillance technologies, in, in another word, um, are sparking the a, a real wave of what are what are what are called sort of community control of policing systems or, or coops laws, like so, or, okay. or, or or so-called like surveillance ordinances mm -hmm. that seek to put our, our sort of local legislative. Um, responses to this public concern that try to be like, okay, well, let's move transparency back into the process around these digital systems the same way that in an urban planning process, if you change the way the city works, if you're going to change a street, there's a public dialogue and a discourse about that. Right. And we just simply do not have a corresponding process for the digital systems that have the potential to shape our environments in as impactful a way. Um, so for example, like, you know, like even something that might not be sensor driven, but like Google Maps, mm -hmm. okay? It's making routing decisions to guide you where to go, but to who, to what end? Right. And I think it's interesting because even um, Google Maps, it used to be, well, what's the fastest 
plate, what's the fastest way to get you from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. We saw some real, um, there's been some real implications of that where streets that were not designed to take heavy traffic are getting increasing amounts of traffic right. routed yep. them, right? So that's, that's like an, an, an example of how this digital infrastructure is making decisions. Um, but then what's also interesting is how with Google Maps now, you're given an option to be like, well, this is the route that saves you fuel. Yep. So again, like there, these systems are these invisible overlays that help shape behavior. Yep. Um, but you don't know that they're there. No, and, and you know, to use the behavioral economics kind of language, like they're nudges, right? And yeah. and there's there's these nudges embedded in code. But to your point, in some cases, they may not even be intentional, right? They might it's not be. Yeah. yeah, it's and I, and I think it's you know it's interesting. I mean, at a local level too, you know, one of the challenges obviously is capacity, right? Yeah. Is having the resources to navigate some of these sometimes very delicate and tricky technical, ethical, you know, data issues. Yeah. Um, so obviously, the work that you're doing now is to help organizations and municipalities and governments around the world in this area of transparency and trust. And I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about the the DDPR, right? Digital Trust for Place and Routines. routines. Um, You know, and you shared it this morning, again, at your Forward 50 talk, you know, as as a bit of a, a, you know, a lexicon to be able to understand that built environment and and the technology embedded. But it'd be great if you could kind of explain what it is and, and how you're seeing, you know, jurisdictions around the world starting to leverage it. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, this is where sometimes I'm like, where's the picture? Um, <laughs> so uh, Digital Trust for Places and Routines um, really started as, as an inquiry, um, as thinking about like, well, what are ways, what what are ways to help people understand these digital layers. And we really started sort of like pretty open-ended. There was an idea that there was there should be signage. Um, there was an idea that probably like iconography is probably part of the answer. Mm-hmm. But we were actually pretty open-minded when we first started it. And it was interesting to see, um, you know, starting by talking to the experts around like, well, in order for you know, an individual to be able to make decisions about whether or not a technology is trustworthy. What should they know? Mm-hmm. And so we were able to then sort of like work with all of these privacy experts and smart cities experts to understand the essentially the taxonomy or the categories of information that they felt needed to be surfaced about every sort of digital solution in order for someone to be able to make an assessment mm-hmm. about that. And so that um, that insight or that input sort of helped us think about like, well, can, is there a way to structure this information in a consistent way? Because we've all fallen down. Down the rabbit hole, or maybe you just clicked right through onto what that privacy yep. <laughs> that privacy notice said, around so what 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 it's saying. And so it's like, well, you know, how can we put some structure to this information so right. that it can start to become a bit more legible? So the core part of DTPR is actually a data standard, okay, and and a taxonomy and a data structure to try to take all of the concepts that are commonly sort of surfaced or investigated in a privacy impact assessment or in a trustworthy AI assessment mm-hmm. or an AI assessment um, and to literally turn it into structured information. 
So that's the starting point. And, and, how do, and how does it manifest itself for somebody, you know, who wants to access it? I think some of the examples you showed, like it could be like a QR code on a sign yeah. in a park, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the so the data standard has a visual representation. So mm-hmm. we do we do imagine that the data standard um, has an iconography that goes along with it, that there is a consistent um, pattern. It's really a design system. It has a consistent pattern where these concepts are presented in a consistent fashion in the same way that information is presented consistently on a nutritional label for fruit. So that if you want to answer a particular thing, then you can actually go there and find it. And so what we... So, so that sort of is like sort of one of the uses of the underlying data structure or the taxonomy is this data chain, which is where we actually go through like accountable entity, purpose, technology type, data type, you know, privacy implications, data retention, storage, and access, and use that to basically like construct a description of the technology that gets at, you know, I'd say like 80, 85% of what ought to be clarified mm-hmm. um, in, in a privacy impact assessment. And, 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 is, and is it a mix of kind of like what the technology is and how it's being used, I guess? Yes. Purpose yeah. is critical. I was yeah. like in the user research. So um, it, so a big part of how we designed DTPR was intentionally, yes, let's talk to the experts. But we were very deliberate in sort of seeing that's like, well, we want this to be useful for members of the public. And so that's where you need to go from like, you know, the very long list of things <laughs> <laughs> that experts say you need to be able to yep. communicate to something that matters to a person in the moment. And in particular, when we're talking, when we're talking about these embedded technologies, what are actually the main things they want to know in that moment versus everything that you know you should or could or might want to know right. if you had the time. And so through the um, design process, we worked with Code for Canada and their GRIT program to test our early prototypes really in pushing and asking the question, well, this is everything about this technology, but what do you need to know as you're going about your day, as you're moving through public spaces? The the, the answer became really clear. Yep. People wanted to know the purpose. They wanted to know if they could be seen. Um, they wanted to know who was accountable for that technology to be there. And then they wanted to have a mechanism to follow up and find out more. And so that also then turned into part of the guidelines for the open source standard, which says signage in a public space should always address these four core questions. And so that is how that starts to manifest. And and so you think about how a structured data set can then be expressed through different forms of communication, whether it's a physical sign, Hmm. website, um, but that there's a consistency as you go through all of those different things. The the goal is to um, basically have you know, person on the street have to do a lot less work yep. to figure out what's going on. Because I because I imagine, you know, one of the challenges is there's almost a bit of an accessibility paradox on this. And I mean accessibility in the broad sense mm-hmm. of the people who probably most will benefit from knowing about the technology that's in their environment and how it's being used, maybe the ones with the lowest digital literacy. And, and, you know, being able to communicate that information in a way that people can broadly understand, not just those who may have of expertise sure. in technology. I imagine that must be part of the challenge of how you, how you kind of simplify that in a way that can be broadly understood by people. And that is partly why there is sort of thinking about iconography as yep. an entry point, right? Yep. It's still very technical. The concepts are still complex, but 
you know, we have, there are many examples of how visual iconography or visual languages are used in the present day to communicate complex concepts. The Creative Commons logos Mm -hmm. are probably um, the most (laughs) well-known and relevant, but we also have things um, like food labeling Um, and then certainly nutritional labels. Like, I don't know that I grew up learning or like inherently knew how to to read one of those, but as like through repeated um, sort of exposure and understanding and being honestly like taught how to digest that information. Now I'm like, oh, okay, now I can understand how I can use this information to make some decisions and to be more informed. So there is... um, there is an educational aspect of this in trying to, in thinking about like, you know, what does legibility look like? Are, are these concepts sort of like understandable, but we're also very realistic. It took the universal symbol signs, so like the accessibility symbols that you see in train stations and in airports that let you navigate yep. the space, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what language you speak, that took 25 years to become sort of widely accepted and right. known. And so that's where, yes, there is um, a digital literacy and an accessibility piece to it, but that in a way is sort of like a long game yeah. and I think does require sort of public sector and standards-based organizations to take that first step because that's where you actually get to like network effects. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's no, but I think you are rightly pointing out it's a process, right? And this yeah. this becomes almost a generational effort to get people more aware of the technology around them, how it's being used and and I guess to some degree have ownership over it, right? And, and to be able to participate in the conversation. Yes. Right? So I think this is where thinking about trust when people don't have information and they're worried about something. Yes then the space gets filled up with worst case scenarios. Yep. I don't know. And that's actually where sort of like polarization starts to really start to happen. And I think if, you know, I'm a technology optimist. I really believe that technology has the potential to solve some of our most complicated problems. But if we can't even be on the same page about what the thing is, then we're not going to have a conversation yeah. about it, and it's not going to, and that that is going to just be very um, difficult and and out of reach. And I'd say that the sort of trust problem around technology um, is not just limited to thinking about sensors and technology in the built environment as well. You know, I worked in public sector transformation for a, a digital transformation for a long time. And for a while, when I first started this work, I was like, well, how did how did I work start working in trust and technology that you know I worked in the parks department, mm-hmm. I did 311 call center, I did tree mapping. This feels how, how did I get from there to here? Um, but what I realized a few months ago was like, oh, actually internal adoption, government adoption of new technologies is also a trust issue. Yeah. When I was working with forestry crews to implement a new work management system, I really needed to work with them so that they would believe that changing their ways of working was going to result in a better outcome. Yeah. Right? So that that is also a trust issue. Yep. And so I think we can talk about public trust and emerging technologies, but I think also when we think about digital government and the change management that's necessary to get there, those are also trust questions because we're telling people and we're letting people know like this technology has the potential to make things better, yeah. but you need to 
believe that that's possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really hard to attain if you don't have the information and the work is not being done to help bring you along. And the work that you're doing in this space is now starting to get adopted in <laughs> places around the world, which is exciting. Um, I think you said there's seven or eight different jurisdictions that are now using, um, yeah. you know, this approach to be able to share information about about kind of smart cities types of technologies. Yeah, they're, they're, we're we're working with um, eight different organizations, with several more in in the pipeline around the world, um, where they are exploring the use of a standard like this or of this system mm-hmm. to support their communication and sort of technology rollout strategies um, with a particular focus um, on public spaces. So yeah, so we're pretty we're pretty excited about <laughs> pretty excited about that. Um, and I think what is interesting is that we are seeing that the public, you know, even if they um, you know, they when when the system is deployed, they still have questions. And what we are seeing is that the taxonomy does do the job of helping demystify the technology to mm-hmm. a sufficient degree where then they're able to engage with those organizations around the desired outcomes and the potential of that technology to shift her service delivery or to shift processes that they sort of like understood to be true about how their community worked. And I think when we, if, you know, our hope is to sort of have technology improve um, society for everyone. We need to get to that outcomes conversation. The technical details about how the tech works, who has access to this data, is it shared, Mm -hmm. am I, can I be seen? Those are all crucial conversations. Um, And what we're seeing is that if you can't get, answer those to some level, or at least be sufficiently forthcoming Mm -hmm. in how that would work, you're not going to get to an outcomes conversation because there's just too much vagueness for people to be able to grapple with it. It's, you know, I I sometimes talk about a social license, right? And I think if government is going to be able to be innovative, at some point, it has to maintain that social license to be able to do it. And, you know, the type of work that you're doing, I think, is is an incredible example of how we're, you know, as a society, needing to change our awareness of, of our technology landscape and empower people, right, to, to navigate that. So if people want to learn more about the work you're doing, where can they go? Sure. Um, so, you know, my our, our, our social impact enterprise, our name is um, Helpful Places. You can find us online. Um, but to learn more about Digital Trust for Places and Routines or the DTPR standard, um, you should go to our website, which is dtpr.io, and you can there you can sign up for our community Slack. You can email us. You can ask us questions. Um, and yeah. Wonderful. We'll be sure to put those uh, those links in the notes for the episode. Yeah. Uh, Jacqueline, thank you. This is great to learn about the work you're doing, and I, I think it's inspiring work. I think it's important work. And as you said, it's you know it's helping people kind of navigate this information diet they have. And in the same way, we have nutritional labels to help with that. You know, the the physical diet, your food diet. Mm-hmm. I think this notion of kind of nutritional labels for for the technology diet that we have, fascinating concept. I'm glad you're working on it, and it's exciting work. We'll be following it of great interest. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. John, welcome to Let's Think Digital. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Great to have you with us. So, um, John, I'll get you to maybe tell a little bit about, you know, the work that you do. You're joining us from York Region, which is a regional government in the Toronto area. Um, we've had the pleasure of doing some work together over the last few years. We did a, a workshop session here at Forward 50 at the Forward 50 conference in Ottawa together. Um, but maybe pe- tell people a little bit just about your position and the work that you do with York Region. Okay. Um, 
Uh, I'm Director of Data Analytics and Visualization Services. And as in that role, what we're responsible for is basically um, getting data or putting data to work. That's our mantra. So I really, and it's together putting data to work. So it's that recognition that we need to work with others in order to be able to, you know, bring that data together. Uh, our CAO many years ago, I guess when I first got there about 10 years ago, well, 12 years ago, he said to me, we've got a lot of data and it's now time to start using it. So I really like this mantra and really helps galvanize uh, the whole thing. And it's got a sort of a blue collar thing to it and mm -hmm. together putting data to work. And I, I think that's, that's what we're trying to do. So, and we're doing that in many different ways. So, you know, whether we're um, working with the groups, we put a data platform in place with, uh, for shared data. And we've done that with uh, our IT partners. Uh, we've worked on an, well, the clerks, which is another partner of ours, have built an information security classification system. So it classifies data. So we know what data can be made uh, open to the public, what data uh, can then go or shouldn't be because it has PHIPAA or mm -hmm. PFIT. So it's got that on it. So yeah, we're saying we're doing that. We have data scientists working with us that are doing the analytics. So one of the things we're doing now is looking at use cases mm -hmm. and that's part of putting data to work. And the other thing that we've done is we, in 2019, we worked with uh, PricewaterhouseCooper and we created a data analytics master plan and that's our strategy. And it had a number of pillars and we worked on, worked with, uh, we're, we worked on uh, implementing that. And now just recently, we've just uh, launched DNA 2.0, right. data analytics master plan 2.0. So yeah, that's what we're working on. Which is a lot. There's a lot of activity going on in that space. It's and a lot. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in the work we've been doing together for the last couple of years, I've been impressed at the municipal level, you know, I, I, I think you works at a pretty impressive data program. I mean, I'm curious, you know, your personal journey, because you've worked in the data space for a while, but not always in government, right? I mean, you were outside government before coming in. I'm curious, you know, if you had expectations about what it would be like to lead a data team in the public sector and, you know, what, what the surprises might have been about that. Well, you're right. I started off in the private sector. I was one of the first three employees for Esri Canada. <laughs> then I moved to the provincial government, the Ontario provincial government, into the Ministry of Natural Resources. And then I moved into uh, Ministry, Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing and started Land Information Ontario. Oh. And the reason I say that is because that was about sharing data. Right. And so that was uh, within government and, and outside of government. So that was, and the reason I started Land Information Ontario, or we called it onless at the time was to basically start getting data out to the public and because at that point in time a lot of groups were trying to charge for data and I didn't agree with that I believe that that data should be freely available and that's in 1996 in that time frame or wow. something like that and then I went back into the private sector and uh, worked for this small company for a little while and then went to Esri to run their uh, Ontario region and then I came out in 2011 so after 15 years with Esri again, uh, mm -hmm. running the Ontario region, I came back out and uh, I wanted, and the reason I came out is because I wanted to build something. 
Hmm. And, uh, you know, you build stuff in the private sector, yep. but it's different. I wanted to build something and I wanted to prove that you could build a data informed organization. Hmm. And since then, I've moved from data driven to data informed because there's always gut and, and that sort of thing. Yep. And then next now I'm on data empowered. Okay. I, I'm really interested in this empowered uh, concept that you're empowering people, self-serve, those sorts of things to yep. use data in their everyday job and they can do it themselves and how do you set that up and how do you make that easy for them and do you see the appetite for it because I you know because when I when I think about digital broadly of which I think data is the fuel totally you know I think back to even 10 or 15 years ago where a lot of leadership you know um uh, kind of discussions, I think people in senior positions almost viewed digital as a fad, right? There was this kind of notion of like, ah, they're doing it, but like it's not a real thing. I think that has changed. And I think the conversation around data has changed too, but I'm curious if you're seeing that as well. Well, in our organization, big time. Um, and I'm starting to see it elsewhere. I'm now seeing data strategies uh, as a lot, you know, that government agencies, including municipalities, are now getting data strategies. Mm -hmm. The Ontario government, the federal government, but you're starting to see it in the municipal so I think that has changed. I can assure you we've been very fortunate in uh, in New York region in that we've had senior management that have been on side all yeah. along, whether it was the former CAO or and my boss, the commissioner, and then the new CAO. They're all very data literate and um, understand hmm. that data is the fuel of the digital. Yeah. yeah. yeah lucky. And I often think there's almost there's an advantage with municipal government because they are closer to the people, right? Like sometimes, you know, we do a lot of work at the federal level. I worked in the federal government for many years, and sometimes the kind of data holdings you have there can seem a little abstract. Whereas my sense is, and I'm curious if, if you kind of share this view, municipalities, I mean, in the open data realm, they were actually, a little, it was mainly city governments that were actually leading the pack. And I think it's because they had very tangible data, you know, things like, yeah. as you said, land information or like transit information that seems much more applicable to people's daily lives. I totally agree. I think because I've been in the province and I think it's more data for policy types of right. things. In the municipality, it's operational data. Yep. So it's your your SCADA systems, it's your water, that's a water wastewater uh, system, mm -hmm. it's your transit systems, very operational. And when you can, you know, help those organizations yep. use that data to gain insights, that's really important. The other thing that, well, the reason I like the open data movement is about sharing of data. One of the most important things you could do to get this thing moving is let people know they aren't the data owners, they're the data stewards, right. and they need to share data. You need to get a policy in place that basically um, makes it uh, mandatory to share data, obviously with PFIPA and PHIPA and all, all that stuff in yep. place. And But that, they share data, so you change the conversation from why should I share my data to why shouldn't you share your data? Right. And and that data sharing is critical. Well, and particularly in York Region, which I think if, if people aren't aware of this, as a regional government, it's kind of this two-level government, right? Yes. Where you've got, is it seven or eight municipalities? Nine. Nine municipalities that are part of the regional government. Yeah. And you've actually set up an interesting structure with, with what's called the York Info Partnership, right? Correct. To kind of push that. If you can talk about that a bit, I think yeah. that'd be interesting because it's, it's not just, you know, in some cases, data in your control. You actually are trying to get nine different partners 
partners aligned on this? Well, it's really important when uh, you're pro you're providing shared services, as you said, two-tier mm -hmm. government or, yeah, we'll start with two-tiered government. So, yeah, what we did, and I didn't start the uh, York Info, that was started well before me, mm -hmm. but it was very much focused on GIS, Geographic Information Systems, yep. and getting the most out of that because it was costly and we wanted everybody to build muscle in that particular area, which they did. And then in about 20, I guess when I got there, about 20, I was in 2011, I came over probably in around 2012, 2013, we started moving it to, because there was GIS mm -hmm. muscle, we started moving it into a data group mm -hmm. and recognized that we needed to start sharing data on things like water, wastewater, which was something. And we set up, we set up a platform for sharing, which we call the data cooperative. And you can think about it as a open data amongst partners. Mm -hmm. And so it's not open to the public, but it's open data amongst the partners. Yeah. And so, you know, when a, when a field worker out in Markham wants to see the sewer and water lines, he can see, she, he mm -hmm. can see the water lines in their particular area, but they can see the big pipes from the region and how it all hmm. connects. And so that kind of shared service is important. The OnList, the reason I started OnList, which was, uh, became Leo. That, that's the land registry. Yeah, land, it's the, well, Land Information Ontario. Yep. So, and that was about sharing, again, mostly uh, geographic data. But the reason I started that was to basically start um, for policy purposes. You wanted to get data from the municipalities in order to influence the policies from the province. Mm -hmm. And you wanted also that data to check whether or not those policies were actually working. Yep. And so that's why that's how Leo, Land Information Ontario, came into being. So again, that sharing of data so that other groups in that uh, in that sort of data supply chain have the data they need in order to be able to do their jobs. Right. So that's yeah. Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was, I think, you know, just broadly speaking, York has, over the last few years, really kind of jumped into the digital government era in a real way to try to kind of move things forward. Um, you know, there's a digital strategy York has come up with. There's a digital leadership team. You have been kind of leading a digital academy initiative to get it off the ground. wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of the different pieces of that and how, you know, over the last five or six years, York has been trying to go through its own digital transformation journey. Yeah, there's been a lot of work uh, in York Region you know, in, in its digital transformation. And one of the things you need to know is we're a very decentralized organization with data teams, information teams, and technology teams. And so, you know, how do you bring that all together and how do you determine the priorities? And we heard that from Catherine Lulo this morning. You know, yes, you can, there's nice to do all these little things at the edge, but if you've got a foundation that you need to work on, how do you get the resources and set the priorities that it's the foundation? that needs to be done. So we're starting, you know, it, it's been a long journey. I wouldn't say we've got it perfect, but we set up the digital leadership team in order to basically determine priorities and set the strategy for data information and technology in the region. Um, that wasn't at the commissioner level. It was at the director level from the various groups reporting into the CAO. Um, I think that that needs some more work because I think you do need the seat at the, at the uh, senior management table. And recently, uh, my commissioner is now the head of digital leadership team, and he's he's now uh, he's sitting at that, at that table. So that's one thing. So that's that's the governance piece. Yep. The second piece, of course, is literacy, and uh, you know. 
becoming digital fluent. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's really important. Um, uh, one of my favorite books is The Digital Mindset, and it's all about, you know, those attitudes, behaviors, yep. which gets to the digital standards, yep. and how do you make sure that staff um, uh, are digitally literate or digitally fluent enough that they that when a large-scale system gets built with them, mm -hmm. that it actually lands and it implements, and so that they have the skills necessary and the desire necessary to implement that with you. So that the Digital Academy is training. It's it's uh, it is a combination of the data information and technology group. So mm. um, that has been going really well. Uh, we'll be we'll be adding more stuff on. And we've been very fortunate. We've worked a lot with the Canada School of Public uh, Service, Service. Yep. and managed to get some of their materials and we've Yorkified them. And uh, that's gone really well. So mm. that we don't have to redo it. And we purchase courses uh, from a in our particular case from dataliteracy.com and then we train all of our people are whoever wants to take it, it's in honor to internal yeah. thing. So that's the that's the literacy piece. Well, and I was just going to say, I mean, I think the fact that York has this kind of internal digital academy for a municipal government. 2018. That's, since 2018, right. that's quite unique, right? I mean, you know, big governments at the federal government, some provincial governments have done that. Yeah. But I think the fact that York has kind of put that focus on education is a really, you know, something you should be proud of, I think, in terms of your digital journeys around it. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, yeah, yeah, it was, it started as a data academy, but we switched yeah. it to a digital academy pretty quickly. And I just I just don't know how you make, you know, pr projects land in, internally, and especially large-scale projects, yep. if you don't have that training. Because people, you know, staff need to feel that they have the skill sets necessary in order to be able to implement these systems, or else they're just going to say, no, we're not, you know, they... There'll be a hard time with them, as you know. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So then one of the things we've been working on together for the last year and a bit has been thinking about digital maturity yeah. and thinking about how we measure digital maturity in the context of an organization. You know, something I see a lot of is, is government organizations are at various stages on their digital journey, but it's tough when you're kind of in flight to be able to reflect and see where you're at. Um, you know, and this was a conversation we started having a year and a half ago, and uh, there was kind of a mutual interest in us co-developing a digital maturity model. You're here in part because we ran a workshop together uh, yesterday at Forward 50 here in Ottawa um, talking about the digital maturity project and, and be curious to kind of get your your take on why this was important to York at kind of this moment to step back and think about, you know, what is your digital maturity and how do you assess it? Yeah, I think one of the main reasons is that we have been on a journey, but how do you measure if you've been successful or not? And, and where are you? And is there uh, differences across the organization? Like how, you know, which, and, and then that might all feed into content for the Digital Academy. So yeah, we were very interested at this point to say, okay, where are we on this on this path? And then what we'd like to do in a year or two, as you know, is to measure again or go out again mm -hmm. and see if we've actually, you know, have we increased in certain areas or we haven't. It will help us also determine if we're, you know, low in a particular area. Do we need to put resources and time into that specific area at this point in, at this point in time? And then yep. measure in a year or two and say, hey, you know, the work that you did, it was all worthwhile look at that the digital maturity in our organization has gone up in that area so that that's the main you know those are the main reasons and of course over time we'd like to be able to measure against peers too mm -hmm. see you know how have we done in, in in with peers 
in the end, it's really about, you know, how do you allocate resources in the best possible place in order yep. to make sure your your digital transformation journey is going well or yeah. is going to go well. And so that, well, that's how it, that's what's going to help. And the prioritization, I guess, yes, in a way, totally. right? Because, I mean, you know, I think it can be a double-edged sword, but you were talking about benchmarking against other peers. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious your take on whether that competitive pressure is a helpful thing or not. Because, I mean, there's always the worry that if it's totally driven by that, you know, people— oh, I wouldn't want it that. Yeah, but, but, but there can be some positive sides, I think, when people can actually see how they're doing against peers. And just, frankly, we're all human. Yeah. You know, we see that. We want to do better. I mean, is that is that something you think, kind of more broadly speaking, would be useful for municipalities across the board? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we compare ourselves with municipalities the same size, like other regional governments, mm -hmm. on all kinds of initiatives. You know, how are they doing? It doesn't mean we have to be at the top or the best or whatever, but how are they doing? And can we learn from them, from best practices yep. and vice versa? No, I think it's really important. And I don't see it as a, you know, a competitive thing. It's about a, a success and how to right. become successful. So, yeah, I I, uh, I definitely would like to uh, see us uh, compare to peers over time, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's been it's been an interesting project. We're we're excited to kind of see where this goes. And I and I again I think this notion of letting people be able to step outside of their comfort zone and see themselves, you know, somewhat objectively yeah. is is an important thing because it's tough when we're in kind of the the middle of it, yeah, right? Sure. To, to know how we're doing and where we're going. Yeah, that is the point about getting like someone like a, a company like yours to do it, do it for us. Then it's it is seen to be much more objective, and yeah, get some you yeah. know recommendations or observations on you know what what you guys have seen in, in it. And I think that's yeah. really important to take you know up through the channels. And, and I would say just even like the journey through it, I think it can be an educational tool in and of itself, right? It's people people going through the process, right? Yeah, I, that's part of uh, that whole. Channel changing attitudes and behaviors, which the, it's based on the 10 digital standards plus some other stuff. Yep. But that's uh, that's that changing of that and that digital mindset, right? And then I think that you're right. And that's engaging users, being part of it, and, the, and then they're learning and changing as as it goes along. And and actually, you mentioned the digital standards. I wanted to, to mention yeah. this because I think this is actually a unique story that not a lot of people know is when York was putting together its digital strategy, its digital plan, you made the decision to adopt the 10 digital standards from the federal government. Yeah. Um, curious if you maybe can kind of explain why that decision was made versus creating your own. Well, we thought couple of things. I mean, creating your own, it's going to take a long time. So that was one thing. And we looked around, seeing, you know, what were others doing? And we felt that those 10 digital standards really addressed the kinds of things that we were looking for, those kinds of behaviors and attitudes that yep. would help us on, in our digital journey. So yep. I, th I think that was why, like, why, you know, why roll your own sort of, you know? Yeah, why, why reinvent the wheel? Exactly. And the other thing is, the bonus has been, you know, we, we get things from the Canada School of Public Service. We right. got their training for, on the 10 digital standards, and we were able to take that mm -hmm. from them and, and Yorkify it. And so what a, what a bonus. And if we have, you know, having all different groups with different kinds of standards, like... Yeah. I yeah. don't know if that's the, the best thing. You know, being able to align, I think, isn't a bad thing. Yeah, and, and it's I think the last, you know, decade, we've seen a lot of governments around the world kind of have these digital standards yeah. proliferate. They're all very similar. Yes. They all have very similar things in there. And, and I actually thought it was a very smart decision Thank to you. say, instead of putting all that effort into kind of building something new, why not borrow what we have and see if we can have some alignment around that? Yeah, yeah I think it was a good decision in, in hindsight. Yeah. We've got a long ways to go to implementing them. How do you 
and really get them into the fabric, as uh, someone said earlier. Yep. Yeah, it, it's going to take a while. I mean, we have trained over 100 users on the digital standard mm -hmm. so far, but that you know, there's a lot more to go. A, lo a long way to go for sure. So. Last question I really want to ask you about is, you know, you've had kind of a unique career path, having been in the private sector, being in the province, being in the city. You know, for somebody who may be listening, who's potentially interested in public service, yeah. but may be wary about jumping into government for a variety of reasons. You know, we know recruitment's hard these days. Yes, it is. You know, and it's tough to be sometimes for those who have, you know, skill sets, you know, if they're data scientists, if they are computer programmers, whatever the case may be. We've heard a lot at the conference about Talent, right, that yes. ability to bring people in. What would your pitch be to people as to like you know why they may want to come work in government and specifically why they may want to come work in municipal government? Well, I think you are close to. In many cases, if you do it in your own community, you're helping your own community out, and so that I think that. And I think younger children, younger people nowadays, they they like that that the ability to give back to their community. I, I think, and we get well you know, well trained. Uh, there's good training in the in there, and I think it is a good place to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's at the end of the day, it's about you know, have I at the end of the day you look at your, and I'm at the end of my career pretty well. And so you know, have we made a difference? And you know, I came out what 12 years ago out of private sector, and that was what I, I was like I said to you, I wanted to be part of building something. And so, and I think we've done a really good job. Thank you know, I've had an amazing team around me, work with good consultants which you know provided thought leadership and had we have many new students coming in and uh, lots lots of interest in, in coming to to our organization mm -hmm. and, and being part of something there's momentum there right and yeah. uh, if you provide something that people can a vision or a mantra that people can be part of um, I, I people want to be part of that yeah that's great. I mean, momentum is something that is sometimes in a little bit of short supply these days. So great, <laughs> to, so, yeah. So great to hear that you've got some, and and thank you for the work yeah. that you've done to kind of push this forward. So well, thanks, and yeah. thank you for everything too. Appreciate thanks, so, thanks so much, John, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. As Jacqueline said, we are already living in a world where digital technologies and data are omnipresent, whether or not our institutions are ready for it. That's why we were inspired to develop our digital maturity assessment model that John and I talked about. That ability to help public sector organizations build capacity to be effective in the digital era is so important and in my experience can only be achieved by first holding up a mirror to understand where you are. At Think Digital, we're planning to roll out our digital maturity assessment with other government organizations in the coming months. If you're interested, be sure to check out the link in the notes for today's episode or reach out to me directly to set up a conversation. And that's the show for this week. Tell us what you think. Do you agree with Jacqueline that we're already living in a computer? Are you interested in learning more about this concept of digital maturity? If you're watching on YouTube, tell us in the comments below email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca or use the hashtag let's think digital on social media and while you're at it make sure to like and subscribe if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app and you like this episode be sure to give us a five-star review afterwards and remember to go to letsthinkdigital.ca and sign up for our newsletter and also to catch up on past episodes of the podcast today's episode of let's think digital was produced by myself Wayne Chu, and Aislinn Bournet. Thanks so much for listening, and let's keep thinking digital.